This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, April 18th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The blank check for war handed to the White House by Congress in 2001 and again two years later is still being used, this time to drop bombs on Syria, a conflict that has no substantial connection to the attacks on the U.S. 17 years ago. Gene Healy and John Glazer argue it's time to repeal, not replace, presidential powers to make open-ended war. When the president announced these uh, airstrikes in Syria, along in conjunction with uh, Great Britain and France, uh, was there any legal rationale for authorization offered? Well, if it's uh, if it's similar to uh, what they said after the first uh, Syrian airstrike, the uh, drive-by uh, missile strikes in April of last year. They're mainly relying on a very broad theory of the president's inherent authorities under Article 2, that there are sort of penumbras and emanations of from the executive power that allow the president to uh, launch wars at will. Actually, there was a report today, I think, that uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis uh, requested or suggested that they try to get congressional authorization for this latest strike, um, and uh, he was overruled by the rest of the cabinet. So in a way, according to that report at least, they recognize that they don't have explicit authority, um, but they fall back on what Gene said, which is this broad interpretation of what the Constitution allows. Now, I spoke with uh, Emma Ashford recently, and she says there is a rationale on paper somewhere, but no one's allowed to see it. Well, that that's correct. There is a... Uh, after... Uh, last year's uh, uh, airstrikes on Syria, on the Assad uh, Assad regime, uh, there was the Office of Legal Counsel uh, in the Justice Department apparently uh, prepared a seven-page memo giving the uh, legal rationalization for why the, the president can do this. Um, that memo is secret. It's classified. It's a uh, uh, there's a, a group called Protect Democracy that has uh, filed a Freedom of Information Act request for it, and but the uh, the position of the Trump administration, at least now, is that the their legal theory for, or at least the fleshed out legal theory for why they're allowed to uh, launch airstrikes at will, uh, is on a need to know basis, and the American people really don't need to know. Okay. Now, uh, Senators Corker and Kane, Tim Kane, of course, gave a uh, really good speech on executive overreach uh, here at the Cato Institute when Barack Obama was president. They've offered a resolution uh, and they claim that for too long, Congress has given presidents a blank check to wage war. What would their uh, resolution do? Well, Kane is absolutely right about that. The uh, 2001 authorization for the use of military force uh, passed three days after the 9-11 attacks has been turned into that blank check. So there's a very real problem here. Uh, however, the bill that they introduced Monday uh, does not fix that problem. It, in fact, ratifies the uh, abuses of authority, the extensions of authority uh, that presidents have seized under the 2001 AUMF uh, over over the years. Uh, what the Corker-Cain bill would do 
is turn all the presumptions that the Constitution puts against the use of force abroad, turn them upside down. So essentially, under this updated AUMF, uh, you have uh, when the president wants to extend a uh, the, the global war on terror to a new country or add a new group. Uh, he, there's a transparency requirement where he has to tell Congress that this is happening. And Congress has an opportunity to weigh in uh, with fast-tracked uh, voting procedures. Uh, and if it can muster a veto-proof majority, it can reverse what what the president, the ways in which the president has decided to expand the war, which is exactly upside down. Uh, the, the the constitution in the, our constitutional scheme uh, it was designed designed to clog, not to facilitate war. Uh, you know, Congress is supposed to grant authorization for taking the nation from state of war into from state of peace into a state of war. Uh, so this is a this represents a in a way a ratification of the of expansive theories that uh, that that three presidents in a row have uh, adopted of the war authorization after September 11th. Yeah, I agree. I think when you read the bill, I think it's apparent that they had three goals in mind. First, they wanted to create the appearance uh, that Congress was reasserting its war powers. Uh, second, they wanted to ratify, as Gene said, all ongoing military efforts in the global war on terror. That's an outdated term, but I think it still applies in this context, um, as well as leave open room for new missions to take hold uh, and not impose any substantive limits on uh, executive war powers in the post 9-11 era. Uh, and then third, they wanted to make sure it could pass Congress. So in other words, it had to be inoffensive enough to the bulk of Republicans and Democrats to pass, uh, you know, leaving aside the, the marginal characters on, in, uh, in each party that actually want substantive constraints. Uh, so it's no wonder if you have those three prerequisites that uh, this is a, a weak bill to uh, constrain executive war powers. Okay, so what could, should Congress be doing, if not this? Well, our argument uh, is that it should repeal and not replace the 2001 AUMF. Uh, the, you know, we've been at war for uh, going on 17 years. Uh, the uh, initial resolution, which was aimed at the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks and those who harbored them, uh, has long since been outdated. And in fact, it has become a sort of enabling act for permanent presidential war. Uh, you know, in over Labor Day, it's kind of striking. Over Labor Day in uh, 2016, uh, there was we we carried out 70 airstrikes in six different countries, uh, and people barely looked up from the grill. Uh, what the 2001 AUMF has done is, or it's, a, it's abuse by uh, three presidents in a row has done, has basically uh, made the default setting of America from peace into permanent presidential war. And uh, that authority 
really needs the the threat that we face from various non-state actors abroad does not need anything uh, does not require anything like uh, the wholesale delegation of uh, power and blank check that uh, both the 2001 AUMF and uh, its uh, proposed replacement would be. Yeah, a lot of this is uh, the the status quo is predicated on the notion that we're beset by this existential threat of terrorism. Uh, but terrorism is probably the most egregiously inflated threat in the history of U.S. foreign policy. It's a minor and manageable threat that's best approached with uh, intelligence and law enforcement. It's not really a war to be won. And the military has proven to be a pretty poor tool in terms of mitigating the threat. We've exacerbated the terrorism problem uh, mostly through our uh, activities in the post 9-11 era in the Middle East uh, rather than mitigated them. Um, people might rebut that by pointing to ISIS. You know, we've had a very effective military fight against ISIS. ISIS was unique though, uh, and it can't be held up as an example of the effectiveness of military uh, efforts against terrorism because number one, unlike Al-Qaeda, it decided to conquer territory, which created a giant bullseye for retaliatory efforts. It also set up shop in an area where it would be surrounded by enemies. Um, and secondly, ISIS can't be held up as an example of the success of military efforts against, against terrorism because it's a consequence of U.S. militarism in the region. They have their origins in the Sunni insurgency that rose up to fight U.S. forces in Iraq. So number one, the threat from terror does not justify a massive permanent war footing. Um, and number two, uh, the effectiveness, the, the utility of military force uh, is uh, not something, it's not good. You know, it doesn't have a lot of utility to, to mitigating this already very limited threat. Yeah, and to add to that, uh, with ISIS on the ropes now, uh, with al-Qaeda reduced to a, a husk of its former self, uh, it, what is the argument for a permanent delegation of war powers to uh, the president to uh, to pick and choose where uh, the wars war against various groups expands, uh, unless Congress can muster a veto-proof majority against them. There's really no uh, policy rationale for this, and if the president feels that. For example, al-Shabaab in Somalia to take one of the groups that's forces authorized against in the uh, proposed AUMF. If he thinks al-Shabaab is a grave national security threat to the United States, he should come to Congress and make that case and get authorization for the war he wants to carry out. That's the way it's supposed to work. You know, one of the points we made in the, in the op-ed that we wrote on this is uh, the irony of someone like Senator Bob Corker to give the president a blank check for war when just a few months ago he was talking about how the president's volatility would uh, draw us into World War III. And he referenced the so-called adults in the room in the administration as um, shielding the country from chaos. So he acknowledges that Trump is kind of a dangerous personality, an abundantly flawed human being, as uh, as Gene put it. Um, and yet he gives him this, this, uh, this blank check for war. Uh, in an unchecked way. Um, and so that that is a deep irony that I don't understand uh, why Congress would pass something and give this power to the president that they don't even trust. 
Gene Healy is a vice president at the Cato Institute, and John Glazer is director of foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 